0: welcome back to another episode of the Hazmetician Chronicles. I'm your host Rob and I'm hoping that everybody who's listening to this, your new year is starting off great, your resolutions are being followed, you're disciplined with following them. I know for a fact I've already broken a couple which mainly were the workout ones, you know, trying to work out every single day but obviously life gets in the way and you know sometimes they have to go on the back burner but uh, you know it's it's just a matter of consistency and you know we are human so I mean But uh, hopefully everybody else is uh, doing a great job with your resolutions and everything starting out great for your new year. So this episode is something that I found the other day very interesting. It's very historical. It's from World War II. It uh, involves the Battle of Stalingrad between the Germans and the Russian armies. And the main background story to this is the possible release of a bioterrorism agent or a biological warfare agent against the German army as they were about to invade and begin the siege of Stalingrad. And that biological agent that we're going to talk about today and this little case study of... The, I guess the alleged biological weapon against the German army is tularemia. Now, tularemia may not have as much of a spotlight as your anthrax, your smallpox, those other kind of bioterrorism weapons, but tularemia is one of the main biological weapons that can be used against an army or a large population. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Tularemia. The actual scientific name of tularemia is Francisella tularensis, but we're going to call it tularemia for this podcast. It's a bacterial biological agent. It's highly contagious when it's aerosolized and you breathe it in, or if you ingest it because of contaminated meat. Uh, you touch a contaminated uh, dead carcass from an animal. It gets into the water supply due to like an animal dying somewhere in like a well or upriver or whatnot, and you don't boil the water. That's a way of con- of getting it. It's not really contagious from person to person. It's a matter of getting it from dead animals or if it gets up in the air and you breathe it in. The problem with this is it's carried in your rodent animals, your your mice, your rats, your your shrews, anything like that that's in your region that have this bacteria that they're infected with can potentially infect the water supply, the rodent, for example, were to die in the water supply. That's how you can get it to, or if they touch food or or grain or things like that agricultural areas, the agricultural vegetables or the grain are not taken care of and sanitized, then you run the risk of possibly ingesting it and getting it or Worst case scenario is you breathe it in and it becomes a pulmonary infection, all right? Now, how do these mice and rodents contract it? Well, they have to be bitten by an infected tick, a deer fly, you know, mites, lice, any kind of fleas, anything that might have that bacterial infection that they're harboring, and then they pass it on to the other vector, which would be a rodent or some other kind of animal of that kind. So let's talk about this whole possibility that the Russian army might have released it at the Battle of Stalingrad to slow the German army down and, and kind of disable them. Now, I know they always say that when Germany was making their advance into Russia, that they got bogged down, one, because of the Russian winner. And and absolutely, I mean, from my understanding, I've never been to Russia, but my understanding is the winners are brutal, especially if you're trying to move an entire army across that land. So, and then you throw a possible biological release on that army with the Russian winner. It's probably just a massive recipe for disaster. So Dr. Ken Alebek wrote a book called Biohazard, and I read the book. It's, it's excellent, and, and I'm not endorsing it all. I mean, it, it, if you like to read about biohazard type things, biological weapons, this book is right up your alley. It, it's uh, fantastic of a book. But he um, actually ran when he was in Russia. He's a physician, and he was in charge of Russia's secret biological weapons program that was going on underneath our nose during the Cold War. And they were creating all sorts of different strains of anthrax that were more virulent. They made less of it to affect a larger population. I'll put it to you that way. Same thing with the teleremia. But... I guess after uh, the Cold War ended, he de- uh, defected to the United States and basically spilled his guts about what was really going on over there during the Cold War and what programs he was running and, and things like that. But he ended up writing this book called Biohazard. And in this book, he alleges when he – you know, obviously, he was doing research when he was in medical school over there about this particular possible biological weapons release against the Germans in 1942 – And we have to remember that the siege or, well, the epidemic of this tularemia was from 1942 to 1943, which is the siege of Stalingrad, basically. Well, he alleges that the Russian army in 1942 possibly releases tularemia, And in that region alone, because tularemia is naturally occurring, but the problem is people get their hands on it and then they isolate it and then they grow it and then they make it into a weapon. So, but it is naturally occurring of a bacterial infection out there. In that region alone, normally there are thousands of regular reported cases. But what Dr. Albeck is alleging is that all of a sudden it goes from a few thousand that are normal cases yearly to hundreds of thousands of cases all of a sudden. And coincidence, who knows? Um, Again, this is all speculation just through like what he found when he was doing his studies in medical school. And then he wrote it in his book as well. And then I did a little homework, too, and I found a few things online about it. And there are some things that actually say, yeah, it seems like it could have been a biological release. But if you look at the whole nature of the situation of the war and that battle in particular in that region, then it actually might lead to more of a natural coincidental epidemic. So not man-made, basically. But the thing, too, that kind of throws a little curveball out there is the fact that a lot of the cases in that region of, of Russia during that time frame, during the battle, were pulmonary related. And when you have pulmonary type cases, that's more suspect of a man-made weapon that's been dispersed into the air for people to breathe in. So it's just kind of like leading more towards like, oh, it was a possible weapons release by uh, by the military. But again, during that time frame, right before the battle, you have to remember, in the Rostov region, which is where Stalingrad is, There were already 14,000 cases of teleremia reported. And this is months before the actual German army showed up to begin the fight. So right there, you're like, okay, well, we already have a large number of people that are sick with this bacterial infection. So, I mean, and then all of a sudden when the battle started, it exploded exponentially of how many more cases were coming back. And not only just the German army and the civilian, the Russian civilians of that region, but also the Russian army started coming down with it. So is it a matter of they might have released it as a weapon and it backfired on them and literally blew back on them on their own army and both armies were affected and everybody in between? Or was it that the area and the battle itself was just so intense that it basically created a haven for rats to be that were contaminated with it and had the bacteria to be touching the food, drinking the water, dying in the water, and then the soldiers are trying to survive as well? not only from the battle, but also with just natural needs and whatnot of food and water, and then they were touching it and, and drinking it and getting contaminated with it. And not to mention, with battles and, and, and warfare, I'm sure that if there was any kind of tularemia on a surface and it got disrupted and it went into the air, you were more likely to breathe it in, so therefore that's maybe where the inhalation Cases were coming from. So there are quite a few reports from the front lines saying that the Russians were coming down with it. The Germans were kind of halted in their tracks with it. And then another officer for the Russian army, who was in charge of the air force for them, was acknowledging the fact that a lot of his pilots were coming down with it abruptly because tularemia does affect the person relatively quick after you are infected with it. That's the you know why it's used as a weapon because if you can distribute it and disperse it, the army or whoever breathes it in and gets contaminated with it they're going to feel the effects relatively quickly after instead of waiting weeks for it to feel the effects. So that's the thing why teleremia sometimes is used as more of a weapon to kind of slow everything down. Now, it can be fatal, but a lot of times with proper treatment and supportive care, it's not fatal. Obviously, if you're very young, very elderly, or you have some kind of suppressed immune system, then yes, it can affect you and, and it can be potentially fatal. There are some antibiotics that are, are active against it, against the teleremia, but a lot of it is just supportive care. There is no vaccine for it unfortunately. So the incubation period for telaremia is one to 10 days, but it's usually more like three days. So you do have a little bit of a a larger range, but it's such a fast-acting bacterial infection that usually three days. And then if you get the inhalation kind, that can usually lead to like an opportunistic infection of very lethal pneumonia. So the thing about telaremia, it is a category A bioterrorism agent, So, it falls into the same category as anthrax, ricin, botulism, Ebola, things like that. So, and smallpox as well. When we are dealing with this, we have to obviously take the necessary precautions of proper hazmat suits, proper masks, filtration, decontamination. Obviously, we're going to use bleach as our decontaminant for uh, our suits and for different equipment and whatnot that we use, but going back to the Battle of Stalingrad and, and and why it was more or less probably a coincidental natural epidemic of that region is in that area, they're harvesting, well, they're farming grain and, and hay and wheat and all that, but because of the war and everything going on, these fields were not getting harvested, which led to what? A large, large supply of food for rats and any kind of other rodent that were harboring this tularemia bacteria. So they were just eaten like kings, basically, these rodents. And then they would go off and, and get into where the armies were and the soldiers were. And then that's how they're passing it on to them with the, the food, touching the soldiers' food, the water, dying in the water, things like that. And then soldiers obviously were the, um, the final stop for it and were the ones that got infected. Now, one thing to kind of go over is the signs and symptoms of tularemia, And let's talk about it with the early flu-like symptoms. Chills, cough, fatigue, fever, headache very common flu-like symptoms. So again, if there's any chance of a bioterrorism agent being released and it happens to be tularemia, then these are things that we should be looking at if we're responding to that type of call and helping the FBI or the CDC, uh, anything like that, that if it gets to that level, which it absolutely will because of the magnitude and the fast acting part of the bacteria to infect a large population. The general signs and symptoms that you will uh, experience are abdominal pain, chest discomfort or a feeling of fullness, fatigue, fever, headache, muscle aches and pain, non-productive cough, pneumonia. Again, that's the part that could potentially be the fatal aspect of the inhalation, teleremia. Respiratory distress, skin inflammation, skin lesions, sore throat, swollen lymph nodes, and vomiting. This whole situation that was going on in Stalingrad, and this went on for a year, 1942 to 1943, this epidemic occurred in that region. Now, post-war intelligence from the U.S., when we looked at everything, we surveyed the whole situation and talked to the Germans and the Russians and all that, and the Germans themselves and their biological weapons group from the German army during the the war, never suspected that the Russians ever released anything. They themselves even said, yeah, I think it was just a coincidental outbreak because the region was ripe for large amounts of uh, population of rats to be there. The food was plentiful at the time before the battle, and the rats were running rampant. The end result was they were infecting everything. So that's just one thing to uh, to consider. I found that very interesting about the biological agent itself, teleremia. And all the cases that not only the Germans, the civilians in Russia, and then the Russian army all came down with at that battle itself. Now, obviously, like I said before, telurimi is not going to have the same lethality as a anthrax attack or smallpox attack or an Ebola attack. But again, it is strong enough of a bacteria and a biological agent that it can stop a population in its tracks because it is so quick acting if you were to ingest it or breathe it in. And you need as little as 10 microbes from this bacteria to breathe in to begin the infection process for the pulmonary side of it. And then ingesting it, you're going to need a lot more immunities and all that in the intestines as well. So you might need a little bit more of the microbes itself for teleremia to ingest it to get that part of it going to be infected. But nonetheless, touching it, breathing it in, ingesting it, that is a quick way of contracting it and becoming very, very sick. So that was just our, um, our little story, little history in there, too. Uh, it's uh, I'm big on history. I love history. And I read this, and I was like, I want to share this on one of the episodes. So we're going to be doing a lot more of the WMD-type episodes here. There's you know quite a few case studies of WMD, for example. One of the future episodes for the Hazmatitian Chronicles is going to be the sarin release at the Tokyo subway. So, and we're going to talk more about nerve agents and whatnot. And we might do a special episode where we focus mainly on nerve agents that are either weaponized or for just general use, which are your organophosphates and your carbamates, your pesticides, basically. And we'll talk a little bit about antidotes and whatnot. So the unfortunate thing is tularemia does not have any kind of antidote, like I said before, supportive care and some antibiotics might work to kind of quicken the illness for the person and get them, you know, on the mend a little faster. But other than that though, there's not a cure all, you know, just go to one of the pharmacies locally and get antibiotics, and call it a day. Future episodes, we're going to be talking more about the WMD, and we're going to be focused on some more case studies with WMD-type incidents and biologicals, nerve agents, things like that. So definitely stay tuned for for that. The other thing, too, is if you haven't downloaded the Podbean app, do so if you can, That way, and, and follow us as well. That way you can get alerts that when I post some new episode, it's going to go and let you know right on your phone and alert you to it. Not only that, but if you're not following our Facebook page, which all of our Hazmatician Chronicles, our other podcasts, the Hazmaticians, and Fire Department University are all under Fire Department University Facebook page, so make sure you're following that. That way, you get updates on the new links, and I post different chemical bulletins for the hazmat side of things as well. Just uh, you know, just an open reference is what our podcast is about, and what I'm about, and what our Facebook page is about. You know, I want to help educate as many people as possible. So, also, we are on all major podcast outlets, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, iTunes. So if you have that, you can just type in Fire Department University and find us there because we post all of our Hazmat podcast under FDU. So that's a great way to find us. So hopefully um, you got something out of this episode today. Thank you for listening and definitely share it with your friends if you think they would like this and definitely start following us. Okay. Stay safe out there and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.